Axis Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank. Ideas Bank here. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, what was missing from WeWork's IPO filing and the White House stalls a big wind power project. But first, big trouble in little China. So two months ago, we did an entire episode focused on protests in Hong Kong, where a proposed rule on extradition to mainland China was viewed as threatening the city's position as an independent global business hub. Plus, a lot of people viewed it as an imposition that violated China's promise to be mostly hands off when it came to Hong Kong's affairs. Now, things are escalating. This week has seen thousands of demonstrators pack the main terminal of Hong Kong's airport, basically shutting the whole thing down by blocking departure areas and security gates. Pepper spray toting riot police were there too, one of whom was allegedly beaten with his own baton. Now, state-run media in China has basically called the protesters terrorists, and there are images now of paramilitary police, Chinese paramilitary police, assembling across the Hong Kong border in Shenzhen. President Trump is also tweeting about it this morning, but hasn't issued any sort of statement in support of the protesters who are still ostensibly focused on the extradition bill, but who have now expanded their list of pro-democracy demands to what is feeling like an inevitable showdown with Beijing. Why it matters for business is that Hong Kong is a global financial hub, a gateway between East and West. Why it matters for trade is that all of this comes as China and the U.S. seem further apart than ever before. And why it matters for global politics is that Hong Kong could be the next place where democracy runs up against dictatorship. But for the first time in centuries, it's unclear exactly which side America is standing with. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios World Editor David Lawler. But first, this. Ping pong tables, kombucha on tap, and open floor office plans are nice, but your startup will need more to succeed. With Silicon Valley Bank, you'll get a banking and financial partner with more than 35 years of experience helping founders move their bold ideas forward faster. Silicon Valley Bank, ideas, bank here. Visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more. We're joined now by Axios World Editor David Lawler. Let's start here with state of play, whether it be the airport, protests, etc. David, where are we right now physically in Hong Kong? Flights have resumed from the airport. Things have calmed down a bit on that side. But we do have these Chinese paramilitaries, the, the armed police of China, massing across the border in Shenzhen. And they were conducting exercises. They've occupied a sports stadium there. And so there's lots of concern that this is groundwork for a harsh crackdown the next time we see a big protest. Do you get the sense that that's indeed what's happening as opposed to kind of putting them there for a show of force and a threat rather than a threat that would actually be carried out? Right. So it's hard to tell what is a threat and, you know, what is backed by something. I mean, I I do think I've heard from experts that if this carries on, if we continue to see the kinds of disruptions we saw in the airport, China will eventually calculate that they have no choice but to crack down. They can't let this kind of instability, especially instability triggered by pro-democracy and anti-Beijing sentiment, right? This sort of stuff, they can't let it fester. Eventually, they'll have to intervene directly instead of saying this is Hong Kong's matter to resolve. But I think you're right that we probably won't see tanks roll into Hong Kong anytime soon the way that we saw in Tiananmen Square 30 years ago. It will likely be a more measured response from China this time around. But, you know, they've shown that they have the kinds of numbers that they could bring overwhelming force to bear if necessary. 
You know, speaking of Tiananmen and going back 30 years, one of the results of that from a global perspective was kind of this widespread condemnation of China. It caused economic problems, you know, because obviously trading partners are upset. Does China have reason to fear that again? The country's in much different place than it was 30 years ago. And kind of the country that historically would have been its biggest problem with this, the U.S., Trump hasn't yet to come out in support of the protesters at all. Right. Trump has actually referred more to Beijing's side of the equation, saying she's a reasonable guy and, you know, he'll do what's right here. And now he's saying he should meet with the protesters. So he clearly is not on the side of the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong, per se. Right. Which is worth just repeating again, because it's a pretty remarkable thing for the United States to not be on the side of pro-democracy protesters in China. Right. Exactly. And so the message has been a bit different from the State Department than from Trump himself. But, yeah, we're not seeing the kinds of backing for this protest that you might have have expected in the past. Now, what China does have to fear is, does this accelerate? If they do crack down here, does this accelerate the construction of this wall we're sort of seeing between China and the U.S. and China and the West writ large in terms of people are now coming to the conclusion that China is not a country we can do business with, right? That business as usual can't continue long-term with China. And if we see blood in the streets, God forbid, that is something that China would fear. And they would also fear the economic repercussions of a paralyzed Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong is still important to China's economy. So they'd like to see these disruptions ending, which are clearly, you know, disruptive in the short term. But if you do see the kind of crackdown that leads to potentially a crash, you know, real concern internationally about Hong Kong, it could hit them in the wallet as well. And, you know, in addition to the international reputation. The original protests a couple months ago, when I think you and I last talked about this, you know, started over this proposed extradition bill, which is still sitting out there. From your perspective, is it still about that specifically, or is that almost an avatar for a larger question of the involvement or lack of involvement of China in Hong Kong policy? Right. So that was the spark. It was this bill that said if you were accused of a crime by China and you were in Hong Kong, then you could be extradited back to China, where obviously they don't have the same standards in terms of the rule of law as Hong Kong. So there was lots of concern there. But that was part of a bigger picture where Hong Kongers felt that their autonomy that they'd had since they were handed back to China in 1997 from the UK, that it was eroding, that they were becoming more and more just another Chinese city that had to play by China's rules. And this extradition bill was a particularly good example of what they were worried about. And now you've seen that original demand that that bill be shelved is still on the table. They're not pushing ahead with that bill, but they haven't formally withdrawn it. So that threat is still there from Hong Kong that they could pass this bill. But they're also now making much broader demands. They want direct democracy. They don't like the fact that they can only vote for people that Beijing has handpicked. You know, they're making much broader demands about democracy. And that's the sort of stuff that is even less palatable to Beijing. They're not even countenancing these the idea that they are going to make pro-democracy reforms in order to quell these protests. Do we have any sense on what kind of general sentiment within Hong Kong is? So, you know, you see these protests, thousands of people, not, you know, thousands of people in an airport. That's substantial. But Hong Kong obviously is a very large city with a lot of residents. Do we have any real sense on what the general population feels about all this? So this is purely anecdotal. I'm not in Hong Kong, but I've been reading reporting from lots of people who are. That's good. There was clearly a mass movement here when we saw millions, literally over a million people in the streets, a huge percentage of the Hong Kong population earlier in these protests. Now what you're seeing are smaller protests and they're dominated by mainly students and people who have more hardline demands. And you have seen people in older generations quoted that they're, first of all, they're concerned for the 
safety and futures of these kids who are putting a lot on the line to be in the airport earlier this week and just in sort of the line of fire, if you will, and also people who are in Hong Kong to do business. I mean, there, there are people who are concerned that this is grinding things to a halt and that basically Hong Kong is not the you know, safe, docile place. Kind of this global gateway, yeah. Right, that they thought they were moving to. So you're seeing more concerns creep up. It is a calculated risk on the part of the protesters to be as disruptive as they have been, to say they're prepared for China to escalate on their end too. It's a different style of protest than we saw when we last spoke, you know, a few weeks ago. David Lawler, editor of Axios World, which you can get at signup.axios.com. Thank you so much for joining us. My final two, right after this. Silicon Valley Bank strives to provide banking services at your pace. Quick, nimble, and always looking ahead. And when you run into a speed bump, they'll have the insights and expert advice to help guide you through it. Visit svb.com forward slash next to learn more. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is the WeWork IPO. So yesterday we discussed lots of what's in the company's IPO filing, but today I want to note something that's not there at all. It's a financial metric called community adjusted EBITDA. And this is something that WeWork created to kind of approximate unit economics, kind of including all the costs and expenses specific to existing WeWork facilities, but excluding all company-wide expenses like executive salaries. Now, community adjusted EBITDA has generated a lot of journalists snickering over the years, and it looks like the SEC has sided with the Twitterati. So community-adjusted EBITDA was all over WeWork's confidential IPO filings, the one submitted for private review to the SEC, including 28 mentions in a draft from May. But in the public filing yesterday, it wasn't mentioned even once. And finally this morning, wind. So a couple weeks ago, I taped this podcast from Martha's Vineyard, a formerly blue-collar island off of Cape Cod that has now become a summer getaway for the rich and famous, plus me. Anyway, the local big news story there for years has been what would become the country's largest offshore wind farm, about 15 miles south of the coast, containing 84 giant turbines. The plan was to begin construction later this year and have the wind farm become operational by 2021. But now the Trump administration has delayed the project because of infighting over protections for fishermen, or put more bluntly, what the fishermen will be compensated for possible lost revenue. The bottom line here, those opposed to wind power, including President Trump, often chide rich liberals for not wanting wind farms in their backyards, particularly when those backyards are seen at coastline. And sometimes it's been a legitimate criticism, particularly in parts of Cape Cod. But in this case, the locals are mostly okay with it. And it's the White House that's stopping the build. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great National Leathercraft Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.